0: Hi everyone, welcome back to The Lake Podcast, where we speak to authors on their recent books on South Asia. I'm your host Karthik Nachipan, podcasting from Singapore. Two episodes before this one, we covered a book that tackled a disease, cancer, and how it was endured by individuals and institutions in an urban setting in South Asia, specifically Delhi. In this episode, we cover health again through a splendid recent book that looks at another disease, tuberculosis, but through the lens of cures, how we think about them, how cures are imagined and constituted, and importantly, the limits and failures of cures and the conditions that affect that determination. The book, At the Limits of Cure, by UCLA anthropologist Bharat Venkat, however, is not just about TB and its cures. It's a superb ethnography but also a history of TB in India that draws on a range of materials including archival research, oral histories, film and folklore. Here is Bharat Venkat on his recent book, At the Limits of Cure, published by Duke University Press. Hi Bharat, um, thank you for doing this. Uh, I, I want Thanks so much for having me. I, I want to begin by, by asking uh, uh, you about your journey with this book and this whole project. Uh, what drove your interest in medical anthropology and then diseases like HIV uh, and then TB? Uh, so where and how did this journey begin?
1: Hey, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I didn't see myself as a medical anthropologist for a long time. I, my training was in cultural anthropology. Um, and, you know, I really started off this project interested in what's been called Philanthrocapitalism. I was really kind of invested in understanding the Gates Foundation specifically, right, and how they were transforming the shape of global health um, the world over, but specifically in India, through all of their work with HIV interventions, right, specifically HIV prevention work. And so I, you know, I began doing field work in, in Bangalore, and in Chennai, looking at HIV prevention efforts that were being funded in part through uh, Avahan, which was the kind of Gates Foundation, uh, which was the kind of organization working with Gates, um, or that was kind of representing Gates in India, and um, you know, doing doing that work, I began I became interested in the question of treatment as well, because prevention and treatment were still being treated as kind of two separate types of interventions. Um, you know, there was a kind of real strong sense that there's prevention work, there's treatment work; um, these are two different kinds of things, and one can do treatment or prevention without the other, right? And so Gates was really focused on that prevention side of things. Um, so I began doing a, 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 some field work in a clinic in Chennai that does HIV treatment just to understand that other side. Um, and what was happening in this clinic? You know, I, I would hear every day um, what I began to think of as a gospel of normalcy. So counselors would tell patients and their families, you know, you can live a totally normal life. Um, you won't have to change anything as long as you, more or less, you know, eat healthy, drink good water, sleep, etc. But also take your medication, and taking your medication became the kind of central way to maintain normalcy despite being HIV positive. Um, but you know, the idea was that you wouldn't have to fear, say, an early death or kind of debilitating illness. Um, yet sometimes I would see patients come in in extremis and 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 die in the hospital, right? And I would ask doctors, you know, what's going on here? Um, and then they say, no, 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 it's not HIV, it's tuberculosis. Um, tuberculosis is the kind of most uh, common opportunistic infection related to HIV. Um, and the kind of odd thing here, the odd part of the story is that tuberculosis, they would tell me repeatedly, is an eminently curable condition, right? Um, so we had on one hand tuberculosis, an eminently curable condition, HIV, an eminently manageable condition through treatment, right? Um, and yet people were dying from the curable condition of all things. Um, and this kind of really puzzled me, you know, I was, because these people, they, you know, folks had access to treatment. It wasn't as if the problem was simply about access, you know, if you had the medicine, that'll take care of everything. There was something else going on here. So I wanted to kind of understand, you know, um, you know what does it mean for a disease to be curable, Uh, when folks in fact aren't being cured or when folks are still dying from this condition? Uh,
0: I I, I heard long time ago that most Indians have a strain of TB in their body, right? And, And that sort of somehow immunizes them from getting worse from TB, right? Uh, so is that, is that so, true? Or is that, is that, well, how, how, how does that fit? Right?
1: So, so what's called latent tuberculosis is quite common in India and much of the world, really. I think something like one third of the global population is infected with, with the bacteria that cause tuberculosis, but it's in kind of um, the, the levels are so low or the body's able to manage it such that, um, you know, it remains subclinical. You don't have symptoms, right? And this is why, you know, in India, um, the revised national TB control program focuses on active cases, right? So what this means is that you only really get diagnosed and treated if you go to a clinic or hospital with symptoms. Nobody's going out testing for folks with just latent infections, right? Um, And I was told by government officials that it's just too expensive, right? Why would you bother going around uh, testing everybody even people with no symptoms and treating them, that's incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming. There's just too many folks to do that, right? So the focus is really on what they call passive case finding, right? So people who just show up with symptoms.
0: I I wanna get to the puzzle which you mentioned, um, which which drives the book. Even though TB is ostensibly a curable condition, people were still dying of it through HIV. Um, So tell us how you thought through this and, and frame
1: so this idea of being cured and what that actually meant. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. At first, I didn't know what to make of this. And I spent years just kind of working between HIV tuberculosis, understanding them together, understanding the relationship between chronicity and chronic illness versus, say, curable conditions. Um, and then I began working a bit in a specific, a sp- specific sanatorium uh, near Chennai called Thambrum Sanatorium. And I was very curious about its history, how did it arrive there, um, who had built it, what were, its, what were the intentions behind its construction, who was it for. Um, Thambaram actually has become, I think, the biggest one, or one of the biggest HIV hospitals in India, if not across Asia. But before that, it was you know, one of the early sanatoriums in India for tuberculosis. Um, and now, of course, they have a lot of HIV patients, HIV TB patients, so folks with co-infections. Uh, folks with uh, cases of severe drug resistance right? for for both conditions or either or both conditions. Um, And so I began kind of looking into the history of this institution, into the history of sanatoriums and the history of treatment of tuberculosis in India. Um, And what I kind of began to see was that this idea of cure wasn't just a problem in our contemporary moment. It's in a way always been a problem. Uh, The way in which people define cure, there's been debates about this, right? If you look in the uh, colonial archives. Whether in London or in Delhi or in Calcutta, you see debates about you know what really counts as cure, right? So, for example, British soldiers who who come to India and then fall ill from what's diagnosed as tuberculosis, uh, the question is you know how do you cure them? Can you cure them here in India? Do you have to take them else back to England, for example? Um, if you bring them back to India, will they remain cured, or will the cure evaporate under the kind of climactic or social conditions of India, right? So. How long does a cure last? Does it really endure? Does it need to? Uh, the other kind of interesting thing you see happening is this idea of cured enough to do X, right? So the idea that cure is tied to labor and the capacity to labor. So you have, for example, industries, factories that create sanatoria for their workers, right? And you know, in the kind of um, in the kind of records, you know, they they, they make uh, tabulations like uh you know so-and-so is cured enough to return to work right um so cure is not just a kind of on off or a kind of black and white kind of thing cure is something that you can be enough of you can be enough cured enough to do this Um, and so cure gets very kind of seamlessly tied to industry to labor to the need for kind of organizing labor and having uh, populations that can be called upon to work in Factory settings but also work as coolies in South Africa but also to work as soldiers throughout the empire right
0: uh, did did this understanding of cure clash with say local um, local and sort of localized uh, systems of medicine um, because I mean partly it involved I guess exporting a form of westernized medicine into areas of the world that we' not familiar with it
1: Yeah, to an extent, but what you also see emerging are specific kind of cultures of of therapy in South Asia, right? Um, So if we think about, you know, I'm a little bit hesitant to kind of make the sharp distinction between, say, Western medicine and Indian Indian forms of medicine, Mm -hmm. right? Because what you see emerging in colonial medicine is very much tied to the kind of geography, culture, society, politics of a colonized society, right? So, um, you know, what British doctors, for example, are doing in India is not fully aligned with what's going on back in Britain. You see, for example, in the late 19th, early 20th century, the rise of bacteriology and bacteriological thinking um, in Britain, in much of the, much of the continent. And um, what you see in India is you know, British surgeons, doctors saying, well, you know, bacteriology might be great back in London. But it doesn't make much sense in Calcutta, right? Um, Or even if we have, even if we admit that bacteria cause illness, that's only one part of the equation here. There's so much else going on, and so we must think about the specificity of these bacteria in this place, or the specificity of these local conditions, or, or the environment, or so on and so forth, right? Um, The idea that you can have multiple forms of disease causality that kind of overlap or intersect. Um, that's what's going on here, right? It's not simply just a kind of um, the kind of easy acceptance of a bacteriological universalism, the idea that bacteria are the same everywhere and they act on all humans in the same way. But instead, you have real pushback even from uh, you know British doctors and, and British surgeons saying, hey, this is not the same thing here. This is a, a slightly different kind of disease. And then you have debates, right? both um, between you know Indian doctors but also British doctors talking about, you know, what is this disease? What is its treatment? Um, how does it work? How is this tied to maybe, you know, uh, quote unquote, Indian forms of knowledge, right? So, you you know, you have in the early mid 20th century, a real kind of uh, effort to create some sort of concordance between uh, bacteriology, biomedicine and say Ayurveda, right? Um, so a good example is, uh, you know, these Ayurvedic manuals, or Ayurvedic uh, uh, recipe books that will talk about treatments for tuberculosis. And they'll actually, you know, they'll say like shairogum and then in parentheses tuberculosis or TB, right? TB is often what's used um, or kasanoi in right? So you have this kind of uh, attempt to produce a seamless translation between these, these disease categories. Um, and alongside that, um, to try to kind of make sense of bacteriology within a kind of Ayurvedic system in terms of both kind of disease causation but also disease treatment. And that's never an easy that's never an easy translation right that's always it requires work to make those things appear to be the same thing um and part of what's at stake of course is to kind of to to produce a kind of authorization for ayurveda to kind of say well listen uh, we've had this ancient knowledge of tuberculosis you know forever right so far before western biomedicine and here's how we can prove it by showing you that what we call the and what we called is, in fact what you're now calling tuberculosis. And we've always we've already had treatments and cures for this.
0: Uh, I wanna to get to the conditions and factors which you mentioned uh, and how they impacted the rise of TB in India, particularly Indian cities. And you, you lay out quite beautifully the different uh, racial, gendered, uh, and, and historical factors that, that were tied to colonial rule which affected TB patterns in India. Can you expand on how you thought through these different factors and how they weighed on the disease in India. And I'm really interested in your the, the use of freedom
1: as a concept mm-hmm.
0: here or, or the lack of freedom uh, and how that affected TB patterns.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so in the early 20th century uh, specifically, um, the city was a site of much concern, right? Um, This is not just in India, but even, you know, in Europe and Britain. Um, the city, you know, if we kind of conjure in our minds this idea of this pestilent, crowded city full of slums, full of alleyways, full of darkness, right? Um, homes without light, people packed into small, small rooms, uh, horrible labouring conditions, horrible factory floors, all of these kinds of things, that, you know, in our kind of worst imaginations of what a city can be. Um, this is the kind of concern that, that we see emerging late 19th, early 20th century in India, um, and kind of organizing itself in relation to tuberculosis. Um, And so there's a real push to kind of think about, you know, is the fact that India is urbanizing in this way, in this colonial moment, is this the kind of contributing factor or the kind of real push behind tuberculosis becoming a serious problem, right? Is it because cities are becoming um, reorganized in relation to colonialism and becoming far denser, right? Is it because of the kind of shift in a way of life, right, becoming, you know, in terms, in terms of labor, in terms of clothing, in terms of drink, in terms of food, all of these things, right? Um, is this what's leading to, you know, kind of moral degradation that's also leading to kind of physical deterioration, right? Um, are these things tied together? Um, and this becomes a kind of strong argument being made by, you know, a lot of Indian nationalists, for example, who are kind of saying that, you know, this... This disease is a disease of of Western civilization, right? And it's a disease that's being brought to us because of this kind of confluence of, of of certain Indian ways of being and and this kind of Western mode of of life of civilization. Um, other folks have a slightly, uh, let's say, a more pragmatic approach, right? So, in in which you know, in that kind of imagination, the city is you know because the city because you're living in these. Tight, dense quarters because you're not eating well because you're not exposed to light, so on and so forth. These are all really specific factors that can be addressed, and the way to address them is through the sanatorium, right? Or at least that's one way to address them. So, to to you know to build a sanatorium, say somewhere in the Himalayas or even as I mentioned, Dhammaram Sanatorium outside of Chennai, you create this space where nature can come in and uh, provide its own curative power, its own therapeutic power, right? Um, and so, folks who are able to get to a sanatorium and that's a complicated matter itself right who can afford to be there Um, who's paying for it because a lot of these sanatoriums are being funded by missionaries right so there's a kind of real push towards um, uh, towards you know treating christians right Um, or treating british subjects or uh, and then there's a lot of kind of also divisions between sanatoriums so some are only for men only for women um, only for people from certain groups, only for Hindus or Muslims of certain castes, because with each even within caste groups, you have to have different kinds of cooks, right? There's all of these ideas, all of these divisions that we find within society get reproduced in the sanatorium itself, right? Despite this kind of romantic vision we have, the sanatorium is a, spa- a kind of utopic space where social divisions kind of erode. In fact, they're they, they're reproduced, right? Um, and but these sanatoriums really, there's there's this kind of philosophy uh, that you know, through rest, through graduated physical activity, through the kind of guidance of the sanatorium superintendent, um, through the kind of healing powers of nature, one's vitality can be restored, right? And there's a real kind of emphasis here on vitality. Um, You know, it's not necessarily about, and actually it's definitely not about a kind of antibiotic cure. And here again, the role of the bacteria becomes kind of uh, minimized. It's really kind of the focus is on One's own bodily vitality, one's ability to kind of withstand the disease, or to kind of cure oneself through nature's intervention, right? Um, and this is also again why the city is thought to be so dangerous because it's enervating; it li- quite literally drains one's life, you know, drains one's um, vitality.
0: Uh, you mentioned the the leaders of the Indian nationalist movement, and two two figures who find mentioned in your book are Gandhi and Nehru whose mm-hmm. wives uh, were suffering from different illnesses at different points and how they engaged or thought about uh, the treatment of their wives is quite interesting, right? Um, and Gandhi was actually also involved in Nehru's wife's uh, treatment and and and, and, right. and, and, the, and, the, and the choices there. And he advised Nehru on, on whether she should be taken to Germany or whether she should remain in India. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how they they dealt with this challenge?
1: Yeah, you know, these stories, um, I really struggled with whether to include them and how to discuss them, right? Because in some sense, you almost feel like you're gossiping a little bit, Mm -hmm. right? You're gossiping about celebrities. Um, And, you know, for a lot of kind of social historians, this is the least important, least interesting part of the story of tuberculosis to talk about how these very kind of high-ranking people, these people in the public eye, how they're dealing with tuberculosis, right? What we're more interested in is what's going on on the ground with, uh, you know, ordinary people, labor, so on and so forth. But for me, um, the story of, of Kamala Nehru is, is particularly kind of enticing to think about, right? Because there's so much happening that ties her story, her disease to kind of Indian nationalism, to kind of anti-colonialism and so on and so forth. Right? And so when, when she's, you know, she's basically struggling with tuberculosis for a very long time. And she's going from doctor to doctor. She's trying all kinds of things. Um, In fact, um, you know, and and Gandhi's giving all kinds of advice as he's want to do, right? He's giving all kinds, he's saying, well, you should do this, you should do that. Um, And, you know, there's a whole debate about whether she should go to the Black Forest, right? And go to Europe and find her treatment there. And, you know, Gandhi's against it. He's saying, you know, what's wrong with the Indian sun? You know, because again, he's also on this kind of nature cure kick. So he's saying, you know, what's wrong with here? Like, I'm sure you can find... Your cue here. I don't think you need to go all the way there. But she kind of decides that that's the right thing to do. Um, and so she ends up going, I believe, while her husband's in prison at that time. And, you know, she goes there and condition worses, worsens. Um, and Nero goes to visit her kind of in her last days, um, reads to her from uh, Pearl S. Buck's the, the Good Earth, which is kind of for me just a really, uh, I remember reading this book in high school, right? And, and never thinking that I would come back to it because I didn't really like it very much. But um, then that story somehow kind of reemerges in my work, you know, 20 years hence is kind of funny to me. But, um, you know, Nehru writes about Kamala's death, right, with such kind of pathos, with the sense that, you know, her death is, is in some ways entirely his fault. He feels that he's kind of drained her. The way he describes her is almost as if she's a battery, right? Um, it's a really kind of interesting thing where he says, you know, in order to fight for for independence to fight fight for the Indian nation, I had to actually take from her, right? And she basically had no one to take from herself. She was just kind of there as this kind of energy source for him until it was too late, until he had kind of devitalized her in his attempt to help kind of bring forth this new nation, right? Um, So there's a kind of interesting, again, return to this question of vitality and a kind of very vitalist logic um, that permeates Nehru's thinking, right? Um, Both when it comes to the question of, you know, independent new nation, but also in thinking about the the death of his own wife. Um, Was there there something? Yeah.
0: No, so one more figure who was part of that conversation is uh, David Mm Charimuttu, who who Gandhi also interacted with uh, during his correspondence about diseases and health, I I presume, and he features at different points in the book. And I found him to be a fascinating uh, figure uh, here is a Tamil Christian TV specialist um, with a handlebar mustache, his his uh, um, and, and and the hatred of alcohol, um, who is really a, a leading figure in terms of TV in India. So, tell us about how you found him. Um, what did his life and his experiences reveal about the story
1: that you were telling? Yeah, thank thank you for this question. You know, so. So, David Devacharamutu became a kind of minor obsession for me um, throughout the years, the kind of decade I spent working on this book and doing the research. Um, So he was actually the founder of Tamarab Sanatorium, which, uh, you know, so I I began kind of learning about him in Calcutta in the National Library there, um, and then kind of following the trail to understand. So I wanted to know more about him, you know, why did he build the sanatorium, you know, near Chennai of all places? What was his kind of intention? Um, You know, like, what was the story of this place? And, you know, he, I mean, my best guess is that he received, you know, some kind of financial help from missionaries to go and do his education. Um, He, you know, he went to London, he did his training there um, and then established one of the first tuberculosis sanatoriums in Britain, right? Um, So he was a kind of critical figure in the early sanatorium movement in Britain as well as in India. Um, And, you know, there apparently had a very good, very high reputation. he was quite well known. Um, he also, I think, it was what's interesting for me is that he was very kind of anti-bacteriology. He was very committed to a kind of vitalist approach uh, to treatment, and he would kind of, I think, he took like someone like Robert Cook as kind of his arch nemesis, and would write. I mean, I'm not sure if Cook ever read or thought about him, but nevertheless, for Muthu, you know, this whole idea that bacteria was the cause of, uh, were the cause of illness. Was just kind of ludicrous you know and he and he you know he would admit you know I he, he would say you know i can see bacteria under a microscope i know they exist but that doesn't tell me what they are and what their role is what their function is right and he said you know what bacteria really are are basically uh, bacteria are actually bodily cells that have been conditioned and made pathological through a kind of uh, through a kind of toxic environments, right? So basically, his argument was that we live in these terrible environments, these cities. You know, going back to the question of, of, of the city, um, that that makes us ill, and when we're ill, our cells become ill, right? And so, for mutu, the, the 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 bodily cell which becomes a bacteria, you know, this idea that it can actually mutate, was as much a victim, right, as as we are, right? Um, so for him, it was kind of this almost kind of Russian nesting doll kind of situation. Um, where within each, you know, you have, a, you have an environment, you have a body, within the body you have cells, and each is within the other, and each kind of larger doll conditions what's inside of it. And so for him, he said, you know, when you see bacteria, that's simply a kind of sign of illness, but it's not the cause of it. We shouldn't confuse this, a sign of an illness with the cause of the illness, right? Um, so for him, again, the, the only kind of reasonable response then is to Fix everything, you know, from the top down, right? To change the very environment, um, and the way you do that is by building a sanatorium, right? A sanatorium, a kind of a adjoining garden colonies, so you transform the environment, and by doing that, you bolster the vitality of the body, and then you render the question of bacteria moot, right? Um, and for Mutu, the sanatorium becomes a kind of model for society as it could be, right? It's almost kind of a utopian model for how things. Could be reorganized otherwise, right? Um, and he really pushes for that, this kind of very different vision um, of, of how you might, you know, build human habitation in relationship to nature and kind of harness that kind of therapeutic possibility. Uh, Mutu eventually moves back to India to establish Nambam Sanatorium. Um, he stays there for some time, does a bit of research, traveling around the country, um, writing one of the kind of early reports about um, the kind of, tuberculosis conditions around the country amongst different groups. Uh, he then ends up going back to Britain uh, when his wife dies uh, because he's ma- married to kind of a minor member of the, of, the, of the peerage there. He gets remarried. He ends up kind of, you know, as his career progresses and as bacteriology, bacteriology becomes more kind of prominent, he's kind of, and finds himself less and less within the mainstream, right? So his ideas become kind of less accepted within medicine, uh, but he finds a new audience. He finds um, esoteric societies, he finds kind of these more mystical organizations who are interested in his way of thinking about vitality, right? And so he ends up writing a few kind of more mystically oriented books, ends up traveling to the US to speak to various kind of um, organizations interested in kind of uh, more esoteric matters, questions of energy, vitality, so on and so forth. Um, He writes about kind of the ancient wisdom of the Hindus. It's that kind of a thing, right? and, you know, eventually he ends up, I mean, this is something that after many years, I just, So I, I never knew how he died, right? This became kind of an obsession with me, you know, wh- where did he die? When did he die? What happened? Um, and I finally found his, um, that his, his, um, he had actually died in Bangalore while visiting his daughter and was buried there, although I could never actually find the, tomb, the, the, the marker for his grave, because everything had been kind of shifted over as new bodies had been added. Uh, but really, I mean. I have to say, um, I have a great deal of gratitude for his kind of descendants, so I actually spend a lot of time, you know, using these kind of internet ancestry websites to find his, you know, grandkids, great-grandkids, so on and so forth, the people related to his cousins, and just trying to piece together parts of his story, talking to whoever, you know, might have an inkling of a memory or a story about him, or an old photograph, or what have you right? Anything I could find to kind of piece together the story um, so I can understand more about his life. And you know, to me, it's a very unique and fascinating trajectory and brings together so many kind of opposing current or things that we might think of as opposing currents, you know, rationality and kind of esoteric or magic, um, this move between you know the US and England and India, um, this kind of staunch devotion to the sanatorium and to kind of questions of vitality with the kind of rising tide of bacteriology. Yeah, I mean, I found it to be a fascinating figure, and and
0: especially reading his his correspondence with Gandhi on different matters about how. Um, so, last few chapters look at political economy and how these aspects influence or could influence uh, cures, uh, not just the TV but more broadly. And, and I'm was just wondering. I mean, increasingly we are in a in a world where. Um, the discourse of chronic diseases is is more or less kind of uh, front and center. It's like the orthodoxy, right? Um, uh, which 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 requires sustained care and treatment, not necessarily cure. Um, how does this political economy, especially in a country like India where healthcare is largely a private good, influence
1: and shape how we think about care or cure? Sorry. Yeah. No. This is a great question. Yeah. Care and cure both. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so one of the questions I had posed to me very early on um, in this project which was so helpful. Was I was asked by a historian of medicine? You know, basically, are you? He asked me if I was arguing that curable conditions were basically becoming chronic conditions, right? Because a lot, a lot of what the book shows is that people are cured over and over and over again, right? And this resembles nothing if not a chronic condition. You know in some ways so was i basically arguing that what we thought of as curable is basically just chronic um and doesn't this feed into a kind of pharmaceutical um imagination right a kind of uh, you know if you're if you're a big pharma and you can say wow all of these conditions we thought were curable are now actually chronic we can now get patients for life right um am i get kind of feeding into that logic into that imagination um and my answer is kind of no but it's it's more complicated than this right so you know, I began talking at the very beginning about tuberculosis and HIV, one being chronic, one being curable. Um, as we kind of moved through the book and as I moved through my research, these lines became incredibly blurry, right? There are various moments um, in the history of tuberculosis where, where, you know, you have people talking about tuberculosis as a chronic condition, right, or a potentially chronic condition. Um, people talking about, you know, is it curable or not? Is it terminal or not? Um, you have all of these debates around, you know, what is the nature of this disease? Is there even a singular nature? Is it constantly changing. Um, there's also the question again of like, you know, what do these terms even mean? So does chronic mean that it's something you're going to live with quite happily? Or does it mean that you're constantly in pain? Um, does terminal mean you'll die tomorrow or you'll die 10 years from now, Right. Um, So these, these terms all become a bit blurry, all a bit vague. Um, But one thing that kind of unites all of this is, for me, the kind of figure of the pharmaceutical, right? And what the pharmaceutical allows, what the pharmaceutical industry allows, right? Broadly construed. And, you know, India has its own kind of pharmaceutical industry, um, not just now, but, you know, going back to kind of government run uh, pharmaceutical companies, right? Um, uh, Who are trying to kind of produce medicines for the nation, right? Um, There's a very kind of, Uh, strong sense of nation building kind of nationalist project tied to the development of of pharmaceuticals in India. Um, And I think that on one hand, within the kind of contemporary logic of say big pharma, which is organized around, you know, treatments that can persist, right? I mean, if a condition is chronic and you can treat it forever, that's a much better thing in terms of your bottom line than say something that's curable once and done right? Um, in that sense, uh, recasting tuberculosis as kind of chronic and not curable is definitely a great thing. Now, the the problem, however, is antibiotics and, you know, bacterial conditions, viral conditions too, um, function in this kind of funny ways, right? Because the more you treat them, the more you also bolster drug resistance, right? So, you know, if somebody's on antibiotics for tuberculosis for multiple years, they're taking different kinds of drugs, different doses, um, there's a good chance they might develop drug resistance, right? Um, and as, as more of these drugs get pumped out into the kind of Indian ecosystem or in the global ecosystem, you have the spread of drug resistance. Now what's being described as total drug resistance, right? Um, so this means that you can't just easily recycle the same drugs over and over. You can't just kind of get somebody uh, hooked on a certain drug and keep them on it forever. You'll actually have to develop new drugs, right? uh, With innovative kind of mechanisms or pathways to attack bacteria or somehow uh, make the bacteria ineffective within the body. Um, So what this means is that even if tuberculosis has become in some ways more proximate to or similar to a kind of chronic condition, um, its treatment doesn't say follow the same logic as say heart disease, right? Um, You can't just take the same drug for eternity. Um, these drugs have a kind of limited shelf life. They're going to stop working, right? And this is what, ev- with every new drug, and I think um, in the midst of this research, uh, this drug called bedaquiline came out, which is the first new TB drug in something like 40 years. Um, you know, everyone said to me, you know, there's, there's a kind of sh- there's a kind of term limit on this, a shelf life on this. Once we start using this, eventually you're gonna get drug resistance, right? And so to think to ourselves, how do we use this in the most kind of efficient way? How do we cure the most people possible or make sure that we can preserve its efficacy, um, make sure it doesn't just run out, right? Because if it's another 40 years for the next drug, we can't just kind of use it willy nilly, right? And this is where the logic of triage comes into place. You know, who is the right patient for these drugs? Um, you know, which I discussed, it often came down to questions of things like responsibility. You know, who's who do we know will take the drugs properly? Um, how do we ensure they'll take it properly? Do we have to supervise them through the whole process? Uh, do we have to make sure that they live within, you know, say, a few kilometers of, of the hospital so we can kind of surveil them or kind of constantly make sure that they're coming back if they, they don't show up for a day. Um, and so a lot of kind of reasons beyond, let's say what, what what we might call purely medical come into play for determining who gets access to these new drugs and who doesn't. Um,
0: is, is that how we should think about COVID as well going forward? Um, I, I feel like maybe, or at least a pharmaceutical company are trying to introduce New therapies, drugs, and vaccines to deal with it going forward, right? Uh, but instead, we should maybe adopt the the idea of of, inde- of, of it being endemic of, mm-hmm. it, at some level, and and come up with other more um, non-pharmaceutical ways of dealing with COVID. Uh, yeah, and if, I, I spoke with, yeah. and I had a conversation with. Dwight Banerjee a few Mm -hmm. weeks ago uh, about his book. And he talks about the same thing with relation to cancer as well, right? And how we should think more broadly about cancer as something that's more endemic and not as an epidemic. Mm -hmm. It's something that's synonymous with with crisis and rupture, but it's also something that moves slowly, uh, that that is and could become chronic and of endemic concern.
1: Yeah you know this is a tough question and i i um i've been asked i've been asked about covid a few times while discussing the book and i i'm always a bit hesitant to make any sort of strong pronouncement because we're still in the midst of it right and we're still kind of responding to it and there are a lot of strong feelings about all of this i mean i will say that you know the emergence of what's being called long covid i think poses some really important and interesting questions about what kind of disease this is and how it affects different kinds of bodies. It's clear that it's not just one thing, right? And this is what allows for the kind of multiplicity of responses. Why it allows some people to say, oh, it's nothing. It's almost just like a, like it's very casual, like the flu, as if the flu is very casual, you know, or it's like a cold or, you know, um, other folks to kind of feel the effects of, of COVID for months, years, so on and so forth, right? So it's it's not just one condition. It's so dependent upon Um, one's own biology, one's own kind of health conditions, one's environment, um, all of these other factors that come into play. So I think, (coughs) sorry, speaking of coughs and so on, um, I think one important thing to do moving forward is to disambiguate COVID, right, into a a series of conditions that are quite distinct. Um, so not just talking about, you know, the different effects of different populations, but talking about, you know, different strains and their effects on different kinds of bodies, different geographies, how that's tied to things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, so on and so forth, laboring conditions. Um, but the other thing to keep in mind is that we've long had a series of very effective measures against COVID, right? Um, things like masking, for example, uh, that, you know, both in the US, but I think also many parts of the world, is, uh, has not been taken up in the way that it should. You know, in the US recently, there was a court ruling basically saying that masking is no optional on flights. Then you have these, I don't know if you've seen these videos of flight attendants basically singing and dancing and, you know, um, everyone's cheering, they're t- tearing off their masks as if it's like the greatest, uh, the greatest act of violence committed to them was to be forced to wear these masks, right? And I want to take that feeling seriously. I don't want to be dismissive of that. Um, although I'm, I'm, I know I'm being a bit kind of uh, tongue in cheek about it, but at the same time, um, you know, the mask is incredibly effective as a certain kind of strategy, right? And and yet, we're so we were so invested, say, first in the vaccine, and now in kinds of treatments, uh, you know, for COVID, both in the short and long term, and I. You know, just to be clear, I'm in no way saying that cures don't matter, that vaccines don't matter, they absolutely do. Um, on the other hand, if we have these things and we can't utilize them, um, even, you know, we can't, we can barely kind of use masks, right, as a kind of, and by we, I mean, you know, many folks, you know, will barely use masks, so, and we see the same problem with vaccines, where they're available, people don't want them, or a lot of people don't want them, um, where they're often unavailable, people would like them, right, but there's this kind of question of political political economy of distribution, um, but I think, I guess this is all to say, I think the problem is sociological, it's anthropological. It's not simply a question of innovation. It's not simply a question of, can we find uh, a new drug? Can we find the kind of catch all the magic bullet, right? This is something people have been saying uh, for a long time in relation to every disease, right? So nothing new here, but, um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll i'll stop there i'm not sure that i have too much insight to offer no it's also
0: about your how your your health systems how they organize how effective they are how equitable Absolutely. they are uh and and their relation to how how diseases are are, are treated over time so those aspects also come into it um uh you know when i was reading the book and I, I don't think this was your intention but i became more skeptical when i was thinking about cures and getting cured mm-hmm more than ever. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I kept wondering, was that, I guess, was that a point that you were trying to drive home as well, that not just, we have to not just think about the limits of cure or the failures of it, but also ima- come up with different imaginations of how we think about cure in the long run,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: maybe you know, also consider uh, options like palliative care when we have to, when when dealing with certain conditions, instead of being sort of treated therapeutically or pharmaceutically for for different conditions?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I think what I was hoping for was not skepticism, but kind of critique, right? A kind of mm-hmm. critical attitude towards cure. And when I say critique, I, I mean that in the Kantian sense, the kind of sense that we're not, it's not about condemnation. It's not about saying, oh, cures are um, an ideology we need to kind of pull down, right? But instead to kind of ask, what are the kind of limits of what we can know, what we can hope for, what we can do in relationship to these kinds of visions of cure, right? So if we think of cure as being this once and done kind of thing where we take a cure and then we're supposed to be better after that, if that's where we invest all of our money, our time, or energy, What's kind of being overlooked, right? Um, do we, are, we, are we seeing, for example, what actually happens in clinics and hospitals around India? If we, are we seeing, you know, we have um, official reports about how many patients are cured from X, Y, and Z disease, right? Um, and tuberculosis is an important one of those. We have these reports telling us every year um, so many X number of people have been cured of tuberculosis. They've finished their treatment, so on and so forth. What that actually means is much more complicated, right? Um, So if we actually excavate this idea of cure, think about what's actually happening empirically in people's lives. Um, What does that cure look like? What shape does it take? Uh, How does it leave their bodies and what kind of condition? Um, We come to a much more kind of robust understanding of what what cure means and to kind of think, is this the only thing we can hope for? Are there other possibilities um, for kind of imagining life, for imagining health, or even for imagining cure itself, right? So perhaps um, one could imagine, you know, for me, the imagination is always one of of social or political medicine, right? So to kind of imagine, for example, that we could think about something like clean water or shelter or food, right? Um, basic kind of needs as a form of important kind of medical intervention, which is so hard to do, right? There's, I mean, in India, specifically, you have all these Uh, vertical interventions organized around particular diseases, right? You have HIV, you have tuberculosis, so on and so forth. Uh, You have specific hospitals organized around cancer, as as Dwyer has written about, right? And when you do that, you risk kind of separating or kind of um, dislocating disease from context, right? And from life itself. Um, So I think, what I, part of what I like to do in kind of talking about cure and its limits is to kind of to think about a more capacious understanding of, of cure as kind of a radical transformation of society itself, right? Um, through this very, again, these very basic things that are so hard to actually make a reality, right? Um, to have something like food and shelter and water, um, uh, proper labor conditions, all of these kinds of things that would make a huge dent, I think, Um, And I think a lot of epidemiologists think this as well, right, in the kind of rates of tuberculosis and a whole score of other health conditions. Um, Those things get dropped out when we think about cure, because our visions of cure tend to be so narrow. They tend to be organized, you know, from that kind of mid-century moment till this present moment, get organized around something like a pill, right, around a magic bullet, around the idea that you can just take your cure and be done with it.
0: There is a line of that, that that really struck me. I think it's in that chapter. And how you, and you write that we are, we live in a world where, um, and I quote here, we, we are constantly told that cure is something that we want and something that we are told that we should want. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and that is kind of the dominant discourse around uh, medicine and treatment and, and health. And it's it's increasingly difficult to, you of know? mislaunch
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, in a way, um, if there's anything good that comes out of the pandemic that we're currently in is that maybe it's opening up possibilities for other kind of conversations, right? About things like equity and about how a pandemic response or a health response has to be more than just focused on biomedicine it has to be focused on yeah. everything from the ground up, right? Um, I don't know if that'll happen, but I'm hoping that that conversation, you know, will push things forward, perhaps.
0: Well, how would you place this book? Um, it's a history, it's, uh, it's an ethnography, you draw on multiple sources, archival research, oral histories, film, folklore, um, it's a book on South Asia, um, so I'm curious, what what's your take here?
1: You know, that's a, that's a really hard question for me. I... Um, I was trained by the anthropologist Lawrence Cohen, um, and one of the lessons I take from him is that basically we are kind of always encountering scenes or sites of instruction, right, and those can take myriad forms, and um, what makes something a kind of scene of instruction is is partially, you know, the thing itself, but also one's willingness to engage it as such, right, and I think that for me, um, I didn't, Admittedly, I didn't entirely know what I was doing, right? I think most of us doing first ethnographic projects are just kind of floundering. And but, but that, what that floundering allowed was a kind of openness to a variety of materials, um, to a variety of of, of of sites and sources that drew my interest, that kind of responded to this question of what is a cure for me, right? Um, and so if I ask this question of a film or um, a piece of apocrypha or folklore or an Ayurvedic recipe book or of a patient in their family if I asked this question of what is a cure and I heard something in response right whatever that 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 hearing might entail um, that became for me part of this story right and so um, it felt to me that all of those pieces fit together and it, it's a, maybe it's a bit baroque for that reason right because it includes a lot of different kinds of things but um, I think that helps us kind of see a broader cultural logic when we're able to turn to these, this variety of sources. Um, and that's kind of, and I think that's kind of the way, maybe also with the way my brain works, right? Is I'm constantly thinking about how, how might this question um, take form and become animated by this variety of sources or sites? Um, what was the
0: hardest
1: part of writing the book? Are there easy parts to writing a book? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, everything was hard, right? Um, I think the, but it's all very enjoyable, I will say that. You know, I think that there's a great joy to doing field work, to doing archival work, um, to doing the writing, and it's, sometimes it's painful and horrible. But when you have those moments when you're able to kind of figure something out, um, it's it's like magic.
0: Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I I always receive, uh, different answers to this question. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see what what the authors say. I remember one author mentioned that the hardest part was being away from family. Uh, it had mm. nothing to do with the, the intellectual part of the book, whether it's research, writing, talk, talking to people, it wasn't that. It was just that the, the hours and hours spent away from family, uh, traveling and, and doing that which, which made it harder than it should have been.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I, I'm fortunate to have family both in the US and India, right? So wherever I'm going, I feel like there's always family around and friends who are like family. Um, and so in many ways, kind of doing this work brought me closer to people and introduced me to people who I didn't know as family, right? That became family to me. So um, yeah, no, I I, I, I can kind of, I'm fortunate enough to say that, you know, I really enjoyed all of it, really, you know, um, even the hard parts. In retrospect, the hard parts are are enjoyable now, but...
0: There were there, there were also others who mentioned that it was difficult to fit in a South Asian story into fields of inquiry that were not generally hospitable to that richness of the empirical experience. Mm-hmm. And so the kinds of negotiations that they had, they had to go through and what to include and what not, uh, and to get that approved during the... The publication process that made it very, very good. Um, so, yeah, so that, you uh, know, that's
1: an interesting thing. You know, so the book has no subtitle, um, it's just called At the Limits of Cure, and this was something that I was very, um, committed to from an early stage in the process, um, precisely for this reason, right? There's an idea that a book about India is a book about India, a book about the US is a book about the world, and I find this irritating right deeply irritating I understand the reasons for it right you know we have a lot of these big publishers based in the U.S. the audience is based in you know U.S. academies and so on um, but nevertheless this kind of parochialism really kind of mean, I may should be talking about this in a podcast who knows but um, I found this kind of very um, bothersome to me that you know there's an idea that when something comes out of a U.S. context it somehow is so relevant, it doesn't even require a kind of the kind of placement of, of geography. And so I thought to myself, well, the story I'm telling is a story about India, but I think it's also a story about many other things, right? And mm-hmm. many other places, and um, and it's a story that I think is relevant to many people. And so I thought to myself, well, why do I need to justify it by saying, you know, at the limits of, of cure, uh, a story about tuberculosis in India, right? And I think, I mean, I mean the very nice part about, this whole thing, though, is that you know the cover image actually—it's ha- a collage, and it has a map of India in the background. So it still signals, you know, to someone who's paying attention that that it is a book about South Asia, right? Um, and the very nice thing, you know, m- my partner, who's a graphic designer, actually de- uh, designed the cover for me. Um, so we've had about a decade of discussion about what the book will look like, and so he kind of knew exactly what I was trying to do, and you know, I was thinking about things like juxtaposition and collage. As ways of writing as well, right? So we kind of reproduce that in the cover as well. Uh,
0: and and finally, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, um, so you know, the kind of ongoing pandemic has has caused a lot of kind of shifting and um, turning. But my work right now is is around the question of heat mm-hmm. um, and how we experience heat. You know, it's something that is ubiquitous in so so many ways. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot about you know, doing field work and, you know, showing up at a hospital midday and nobody's there. The doctors have all gone into the kind of, um, into the kind of on-call room and switch the AC on if possible. Patients are kind of told to wait or they come back, you know, after lunch or something. And, you know, I began thinking a lot about how heat is kind of at the center of so much ethnographic experience for folks who work in parts of the world that we call tropical, right? But it's often left out of kind of ethnographic description. Um, you know, someone like Malinowski, for example, will write about it in his diaries, but not so much in his actual scholarly publication, right? Um, so I wanted to really kind of foreground heat and think about its effects, its bodily effects, its social effects, how we organize life in relationship to it, um, but also kind of understand more about the history of heat, you know, um, as a kind of object of scientific inquiry. Um, and one that touches upon, you know, everything from engineering to medicine to Uh, to geography, to botany, to um, architecture, right, Um, it really kind of affects, to administration, right, it affects every aspect of life, Um, you know, if you think about colonial India and the ways in which, you know, the British um, tie tie themselves up trying to figure out how they could kind of maintain a British population in India in that heat, right, or how they kind of um, depend upon, say, Indian labor because of the fear of uh, the, the effects of the tropics on white bodies, right? Um, or if you think about here in the US the history of redlining um, and neighborhoods, you know certain kind of neighborhoods, uh, specifically black and Latinx neighborhoods that have become consistently hotter over time because of the way in which um, those places have been underinvested in, right um, through practices of you know uh, denying mortgages, right uh, um, saying no to loans. Um, of not planting trees, you know, using, you know, widening roads, putting in uh, factories, warehouses, so on and so forth, right? So this whole way, series of ways in which certain people are made more vulnerable, more exposed to heat and others aren't. Um, it's a really kind of interesting question across so many different sites and so many different kinds of, uh, you know, in sites, I mean, both geographically, but also kind of dis- disciplinarily, right? So that's kind of, I'm kind of exploring this very broadly at this point, And I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure where I'll land, but I'm thinking it'll be a project that kind of takes me back and forth between you know India and um, here in the United States.
0: Sounds fascinating. Um,
1: Bharat, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great.
0: And that was Bharat Venkat, the author of At the Limits of Cure, published by Duke University Press. I'm Karthik Nachipan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast.